0: Well, good morning, brothers. So glad to see all of you this morning. Glad you got in safe with that fog outside. One of these days, we're going to have normal weather around here. A little bit of an update. You know, the other men's Bible study that we started this year, the men's intensive, um, had 86 people for this new semester. So with a group of men in here, 160 plus those 86, we got a lot of men here at Second who are, who are uh, dedicated to studying God's Word, and that's something to celebrate Um, I invite you to go ahead and turn your Bibles open to John chapter 12. You know, we say this all the time whenever we come to a new chapter, but this really is a significant chapter in the Bible, certainly in John's gospel. It, of course, follows John chapter 11, but it's uniquely tied to John chapter 11. You know, that amazing story of Jesus, it's the seventh sign of Jesus miraculously raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, we were, again, supposed to study that last week, but you know Memphis turned into a frozen tundra. But so Todd's going to come in in a couple of weeks and circle back and really dive deep in John chapter 11. But you remember the gist of the story. Jesus allowed Lazarus to die. He could have gotten there in time to heal him, but Jesus waited for Lazarus to die, and then he raised him from the dead. It's this amazing story, and we're going to talk about it a little bit this morning in, um, in our, under our second point. But that's the context. When we come into John chapter 12, it's this grand celebration. I mean, Lazarus is alive. It's this miracle, and it's all possible because of the grace, power, and authority of Jesus. So there's this massive celebration going on, and it really kind of serves as an inclusio to Jesus' public ministry. That's just a fancy word of saying this is a bookend to Jesus' public ministry. You remember his public ministry actually began all the way back in John chapter 2, the wedding feast in Cana. So that was a celebration. And now here it ends with another celebration in Bethany. But here's the difference between the two celebrations. Whereas the first celebration was just filled with like unmitigated joy. I mean, it was a wedding after all. Um, Jesus just began his ministry And his disciples understood that Jesus was inaugurating something new. He had the new wineskins of the new kingdom. It was just unadulterated joy. With this party, there is joy, there is celebration, but it's muted a bit. I mean, of course there's celebration. Jesus is there. Lazarus is there, uh, a living sign of the power and the authority and the glory of Jesus. But still, the joy is muted. After all, we're just six days away from the cross, at this point in John's Gospel. Now, of course, the disciples didn't know that. Only the readers, the first audience and we know that. But still, the disciples knew something was up. At this point, the, um, the hostility towards Jesus was growing. Jesus was saying some cryptic things. And they understood that something was just different. There was, this, there was this fog, if you will. I mean, after all, the discussion around the dinner table, as we'll see, wasn't about renewal. It wasn't about the new wine of the new kingdom, but rather it was about burial. So, it's, so there's joy, but it's muted. Nevertheless, as we come into chapter 12, what we have, gentlemen, is probably one of the sweetest and most tender chapters in all of John's gospel. There's no signs. There's no wonders. There's no public address. There's no you know, long teaching from Jesus. But what we do have are two stories. One which shows us the heart that a true disciple is to have for the Lord Jesus. And the other story shows us the heart that Jesus has for his people. John chapter 12 is filled with hope, so let's read it in hope, starting in verse 1. John writes, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself with what was put in it. But Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, "'Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel!' that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. A major dose of irony right there at the end of our passage. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for my brothers. And I'm so thankful that you've gotten us here safely. We thank you for the fellowship around this table. Most of all, we're thank thankful for the fellowship that you have made between us and you. And Lord, we pray that through this lesson this morning that we would understand the, um, the amazing nature, the fellowship that you've created for us with yourself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Help us to love you extravagantly, O oh God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so this past weekend was my 11th wedding anniversary. The 11th. Well, thanks, gentlemen. Thanks. The, the winter storm absolutely ruined it, however. Uh, we had this um, really great plan. We we're going to go to Folks Folly. I was going to get three plates of fried pickles all by myself. I mean, those <laughs> things. And um, I just really could not wait for those pickles. But of course, the storm comes and uh, Mr. Folly or whoever was on the other end of the phone called and said that you can't, uh, you can't eat here because of the ice and the water. And so we went from having this amazing dinner planned um, to being stuck in the house with two kids that could give a rip that it was our anniversary. I mean, all they cared about was the snow outside. And they were just bouncing, it was like crack cocaine. They were bouncing off the walls. It was a complete disaster, right, Um, this wedding anniversary of mine. But as I was there contemplating our imperfect love story between Sarah and me, which we very much love, and I knew this, this lesson was coming up, I couldn't help but think, gentlemen, if you are... A believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a part of the most perfect and greatest love story ever told. And I say that not to be cheesy, right? I just say it because it's absolutely true. That's what the Bible says of us as Christians. You got 66 books in the Bible inspired by the one spirit of God, and all of it is about God getting the hearts of his people. This love story begins, of course, in Genesis where God is king in this garden paradise and he's in fellowship with his people, Adam and Eve, and we're told that God walked with them. That is a picture of beautiful intimacy where they actually knew each other. It was meaningful. They gave themselves to God and, and God gave himself to them. It was perfect harmony. It was perfect bliss. But then, of course, Genesis 3 happens. The fall happens And this beautiful, intimate fellowship and relationship that God enjoyed with his people was broken because corrupted people cannot be in this intimate fellowship with God. Now you fast forward to the end of the love story, Revelation 21 and 22, and what do you got? You got the new Jerusalem coming down where Jesus, the greater husband, as the Bible identifies him, is there, Lord of now the garden city, And he's once again in this perfect intimate fellowship with his bride, the church. But this time it's infinitely greater than what Adam and Eve enjoyed before because now there is no possibility of sinning. It is just eternal bliss, eternal glory, eternal joy forever and ever. And every little chapter and book in between those two points is the story of God's cosmic rescue plan to get our hearts and what he does in order to accomplish that, culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, you are in the midst of the greatest love story ever told. And as we come to John chapter 12, we see that love story, we're reminded of that love story by two smaller stories. First off, the story of Martha, or rather Mary, that shows us the type of love that we are to have for Jesus Christ. Then we have the story of the triumphal entry of Jesus, which shows us the type of love that Jesus has for us. So if you're going to summarize our purpose in studying John chapter 12, other than just marinating in the scriptures, I think the purpose is twofold. First off, discipleship. Brothers, Mary... Is our model. And she shows us how to love Jesus with an extravagant love. And we're to look at her as our model and ask ourselves, are we loving Jesus as Mary is loving Jesus? If so, praise God. If not, why not? So it's self reflective, it's for our discipleship. Are we like Mary? But then the second purpose, I think, is for our encouragement, okay? It's basically the triumphal entry is asking us, do you believe in, and if you do believe, are you resting in, the matchless love of Jesus? Because if you are, it changes absolutely everything. All right, so there's two little things here. The extravagant love of disciples to have for Jesus. This is for our discipleship, the model of Mary. And then for our encouragement, we're going to look at the matchless love of Jesus the love that he has for his people, okay? So let's go ahead and dive in. Looking at verses one through eight, we see the disciples' extravagant love for the Lord Jesus. Now, remember the context. This is a party that's taking place in these first eight verses. And it's really a thank you party. It's a thank you party thrown for Jesus and what he has done in raising Lazarus from the dead. And brothers, what we see here, I really think it summarizes what Christianity is all about. The heart of Christianity, and it's this, loving Jesus with absolutely everything you've got. Loving him extravagantly. That's the purpose of Christianity. That's the heart of Christianity, loving Jesus extravagantly. And we see different elements in verses 1 through 8 that helps us to understand what that means, to love Jesus extravagantly. So first off, in, one, in verses 1 through 3, we see that this means our love for him is sacrificial. Okay, Christian love is always sacrificial. It's always action-oriented. It's always other-centered. If we're loving people, if we're loving God by our mouths only, by what we say, it is no better than a Hallmark card for Valentine's Day. If our love is self-centered, if it's all about us and what we can get out of the relationship— that it's no better than the way that the world loves. Christian love is always sacrificial. It's always action-oriented and other-centered, and we see that in the model of our sister Mary, okay? Now, where do we see that? Well, notice the gift that she gives Jesus. (laughs) What is this gift? It is a pound of pure nard, right? Now, what in the world is that? A pound of pure nard, frankly, friends, It is the most expensive bottle of perfume that anybody could have possibly owned back then. First off, it was foreign. The only place you could get this was from India, okay? So it was exotic in the first place. But beyond that, it was extremely expensive. When Judas starts complaining about everything, he notes that it's worth 300 denarii. And we've heard this before. That's the equivalent of one year's worth of wages, Okay, so an entire pound of this. So we can just kind of do the math. There's 16 ounces in a pound. If you're being conservative, let's just go below the poverty line. That means that there's about $2,000 worth of an ounce in this bottle. $2,000 an ounce or $2,500 an ounce. I mean, just for perspective, I got Sarah Flowers from Fresh Market for our 11th anniversary. But this is, this is $2,500 an ounce is what she had. She had a pound of it, so roughly about $35,000, $40,000. Now, the question is, what in the world was she doing with that? I mean, she was a Jew. And there's no hint that she or Martha or Lazarus were, were rich people beyond their means other than this. So where in the world did she get it? Well, the other Gospels give us some hints. This perfume, this pound of nard, was kept in an alabaster box, which itself was pretty expensive. Scholars seem to think that this was an inheritance that Mary's father had saved up for her. Okay, it it was an inheritance because, as you know, reading through the Gospels, there's no mention of her parents. So presumably, by this point, her father had died, right? We also see, too, that she wasn't married. And so a woman back then was extremely vulnerable. I mean, it was a very dangerous place to live, especially if you're a woman, Right? So just think about this, if her father had passed away and she was not yet married, that means that she needed at least an older brother to look after her and care for her, which is why she was so devastated when Lazarus died in John chapter 11. Not only was she grieving the fact that she lost a relative, someone she loved deeply, but he represented her security. And it wasn't just like a fake security either, like a security blanket. He really was her security. She would be destitute, helpless, helpless without an older man in her life looking after her. So go back to the perfume then. Scholars also tell us that this perfume was probably carried around her neck. They didn't have safety deposit boxes back then. That was the safest place that you could keep something like this around your neck. It was an inheritance, and scholars say, in the form of a dowry. Now, what is a dowry? A dowry is something that had to have been given in order for a marriage to take place. The parents of the bride-to-be basically had to give a down payment to the family of the groom in order for this marriage to take place. So here's Mary. Just think about this. Here's Mary. Her dad's dead. Her brother had died but is now alive. But certainly his mortality is on the forefront of her mind. She's single in a very dangerous place. Okay, she's one of the most vulnerable people alive. This dowry, this inheritance was everything to her. It meant everything to her. Her father saved it up to ensure that she could be safe and have a good life. That maybe one day she would meet someone that would look after her. It wasn't just a lovey-dovey, oh, I hope my daughter gets married. No, I hope my daughter gets united to a man that will guard her and protect her in this very dangerous place. So I'm going to save up, scrimp, and save for this thing so that that could be her dowry in case I die. And of course he did. So what does she do with it? She breaks it. Just like that. And the other gospels tell us that she anoints Jesus, starting with the head, and she ends up at his feet, which meant she put all of it over Jesus. That's why this is sacrificial, not just because that this is expensive stuff, it was. But, friends, because it represented the possibility for her having a good and decent life. I don't know what our nards of perfume is, what your alice Baster box is. But for her, it represented her life. In this moment, she was sacrificing her life. And she did it in a moment and covered Jesus with it. We'll get back to the motivations for this in just one moment. But make no mistake, this was extremely sacrificial love we're talking about here. Secondly, it's also humble love. Mary does some pretty degrading stuff um, in verses 1 through 3, particularly verse 3. First off, she's a woman and she lets down her hair. Now, we have this image of Middle Eastern women not doing that um, today. It was the same for back then for Jewish women. They did not let down their hair for anybody. They only did that for her husbands or fathers, brothers, people they lived with, her family. They certainly did not do it in public with people that weren't their family. So here's Mary in public, letting down her hair. And what does she do with that hair? She uses it to wipe the feet of Jesus. She touches the feet of Jesus. And I'm not being disrespectful when I say that was nasty. Okay, because people's feet back then, even Jesus and his humanity had nasty feet. They wore sandals. They walked in the desert. There were animals all over the place. It was just nasty stuff. So this is not a sign of servitude. This was an image of being of self-abasement. Okay, because washing people's feet, there were certain delineations of slavery back then. Only the lowest rung of slaves washed people's feet because it was that self-degrading. Which makes it even more remarkable than just in another chapter, in John chapter 13, Jesus is the one who washes people's feet, including Judas. And I can't wait to talk about that in two weeks. But notice what Mary is communicating here. Remember, this is an honor-shame society. Okay, so I think this is what Mary is communicating through this action. She's saying, I don't care what people think of me at all. Because, Jesus, I know who you are. And you're worth all of my honor. There is no act of devotion that's beneath my dignity. That's what Mary is communicating through this action. Do do you see what she's doing? She's absolutely killing her pride in this moment. All of us have pride. She is killing it in this instant. She's laying aside her ego. She's... Taking off her cool jacket. She is killing that Genesis 3 fallen, self-centered impulse all of us have, which says, God, you owe me this. And this is it. She's saying, Jesus, you don't owe me anything, but I owe you everything. Okay? So Mary is loving Jesus sacrificially and humbly. This is the model of true discipleship and if we're not loving Jesus this the way we're simply not loving Jesus there's no such thing as loving Jesus half-heartedly going halfway we love him sacrificially and humbly so this is a big deal now so let's think about the motivation of what drove her to this motivation is absolutely everything it's just as important why we do something as to what we do okay so what is our motivation <laughs> why are we here at 630 in the morning Some of us woke up at four just to get the bones working so we can get here. Why do we do that? Why do we go to church? Why do we study the Bible? Why do we humble ourselves? Why do we serve Jesus? Why do we serve the poor? Why do we do those things? All right, is it because we saw our parents do it? Is it because we feel like we have to? Is it because we're struggling with some sort of guilt complex that we got to do these things so God will love me? What was Mary's motivation? Well, it's simple. Her motivation (laughs) was, was purely love. And I know that's a no-brainer because that's the main subject and theme of our talk this morning. But friends, that was her motivation. Jesus was the apple of her eye. She loved Jesus with all of her soul. That was her motivation for doing these things. But if we drill down in this passage, we see two things that helped cultivate that love that I want us to take note of. The first one comes in verse 2. She was grateful for the things that Jesus has already done in her life. So just think about Mary, okay? Um, Talk about whiplash. I mean, just a couple of days before this, she was standing in the grave of her brother, alone in Israel, isolated in Israel, by herself, grieving in the depths of her soul, scared silly. Then Jesus simply says, Lazarus, come forth. The next thing that we see is that Mary is at a dinner party, and who is sitting next to her except for her brother Lazarus? And she is overwhelmed with gratitude. How could you not be overwhelmed with gratitude? She loves Jesus so much, it goes beyond her ability to express it verbally. The only thing that she knows to do is to take that which is most precious to her. And break it and cover his feet with it, the one who had mercy upon her. She remembered those things that Jesus had already done for her. Brothers, do you remember those things that Jesus has done for you? And I'm not just talking about monetary or temporal blessing. Certainly give thanks to the Lord for those things because he's the one that's done it. But I'm talking about those, those Ephesians 1, those Ephesians 2 realities of what Jesus has done to save you. And what he has done to save your children and to save your parents and your spouses and your loved ones. Those things, becoming man, taking on sin, taking on death and coming out the other side so that we might be alive in him. If you ever get in a place where you feel like your affections for Jesus are waning, I suggest that you go back and remember those things that he's done for you. And that will begin to cultivate this extravagant love for Jesus. But that's not the only thing that was going on in Mary's mind. According to verse 7, we see that Mary too was grateful for these things that Jesus promised to do. I can't explain it. I mean, most scholars can't. In fact, a lot of scholars disagree with what I'm about to say because it's so unrealistic. But I, I think you just got to read it at face value. According to verse 7, somehow, some way, Mary knew what was going to happen. She didn't understand everything on every level. I mean, how could she? But the faith and the love that she had in Jesus somehow penetrated and allowed her to perceive things that even the disciples did not yet realize that Jesus was about to die. And somehow, some way, Jesus was going to die for her. And so here's this woman, self-emptying, on her knees, wiping his feet, Probably with tears in her eyes. And she's saying to herself, I, I, can't ex- I don't know what is about to happen exactly. and I don't know why. But I know that you're about to do something wonderful for me and it overwhelms me. And so really she takes up the verses that our brothers just sang for us. I mean, <laughs> were the whole realm of nature mine, it would still be a gift far too small for you. Brothers, do you remember the promises of Jesus? not just the fact that he's captured you, that he's cleansed you, forgiven you, and saved you, but the fact that he has promised you that one day he's going to raise you from the dead, that he's going to raise your loved ones who have gone before you in the faith from the dead. Do you remember that? Do you believe that? Are you rejoicing in the fact that one day you are going to be the one lounging at the dinner table of Jesus in the great feast to come? Is that a reality that you've put into your GPS coordinates? That that is headed for us? That we will be robed in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever? Do you know that? And if you do know that, does it make you grateful? Does it make you grateful enough to break whatever your alabaster box is at the feet of Christ? And I don't know what that is for you. It could be your retirement. It could be a sin you're holding on to. It could be an idol. It could be something that's just precious to you. This was certainly precious to Mary. It meant her life. But are you grateful enough to break that at the feet of Jesus? We have to ask ourselves that question because if we're not willing to do that, we have not yet considered what Jesus has done and has promised to do in his gospel. Okay? Now, before we move on, let's just think about this, too, because John is purposeful in putting this picture, this stark contrast between Mary and Judas. I mean, they could not be more different in these verses. I mean, first off, Judas, you know, Jesus for a long time was the only one who knew who Judas really was, that he was a a phony disciple. I mean, Judas had everybody else snowed for about three years. He probably even had himself snowed, right? I mean, the guy was a servant, He was going to Bible studies. Maybe he's doing things in the name of Jesus. He was doing signs and wonders. I've never done a sign or wonder for Jesus. Judas was, along with the rest of the disciples. It wasn't until after the fact that all the other disciples caught on of who Judas actually was. He was a thief and a hypocrite. Why? Because he used the poor, he used religion, and he even used Jesus to accomplish his own ends. And that, my friends, is at the heart of self-centered, pharisaical religion. It's all about us. And when everything's about us, all the things that we do in Jesus' name just kind of gets knocked off kilter. I mean, look at at, uh, our boy Judas here. The man was serving the poor. He was helping the poor, but we see that he was actually doing that to serve himself. But when Jesus is at the center of our life, when he is on the throne of our heart, everything else just kind of falls into place, as it did for Mary. Unlike Judas, Mary was a true disciple who loved Jesus extravagantly. And gave him her entire life. And the next thing I want us to see, when we do that, when we love Jesus extravagantly, there are a couple effects that happen. First off, our love for Jesus becomes aromatic. And we see that take place in this passage. When we love Jesus extravagantly, when we break our alabaster boxes, whatever they are at the feet of Jesus, it smells up the room. I mean, it literally smelled up the room at Bethany. People noticed it. D.A. Carson has this, um, this really cool note about this. He said that Mary put so much perfume on him, remember, it's like 16 ounces. And remember, Jesus didn't have time to take a shower. I mean, things were happening pretty quickly at this point. So that meant then, on, when he's carrying the cross to the hill of Calvary, he still smelled like this. And the soldiers smelled it. And the point is, This sweet aroma of Jesus, which is honoring to him and truly refreshing to those around us, simply does not come about when we love Jesus half-heartedly. When you just love him with half your heart and with half your life. But when we love Jesus extravagantly, when we pour our entire life out, people take notice. It smells the room. And they start asking questions like, why, 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 why on earth did you do that? Why, why why'd, you, why'd, you, why'd you choose to, to do that with your children? Why would you make that decision in your life? And your answer is, is because Jesus is the Lord of my life and I love him with all of my heart. That's why I did it. And so the reflective question is, brothers, are we sneaking up the joint for Jesus Christ? I mean, that really is what it comes down to. When people look at our lives and they look at our affections, And they look at our bank account. They look at the decisions that we make. Will their eyes be pointed to Christ? Because when we love Jesus extravagantly, it puts people's eyes to Jesus and the promises of the new kingdom. Because extravagant love is aromatic. Secondly, this type of love is cherished by Jesus. And we see this in verses 7 and 8. This is amazing. Um, after Judas, you know, is a punk and comes after Mary, Jesus stands up for Mary, like personally. That's <laughs> so amazing. The king of the universe. And he, 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 yell, he rebukes Judas. He says, leave her alone. And why does he say that? Well, according to Matthew, Jesus says, because she has done a beautiful thing to me. He cherishes it. But right here, he says something strange about the poor. Because, you know, Judas brings up the poor, so Jesus talks about the poor here. He says, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now, what's that about? We know that God loves poor people. There's over 400, maybe 500 verses about loving and serving the poor in the scriptures. God loves the poor as God's people. We ought to be loving the poor too. But Jesus right here is exalting himself above the poor. Why is he doing that? Because Jesus is the poorest of them all. This is what Paul tells us in Philippians 2, that Jesus divested himself. And why did he divest himself? To make poor people rich. And who are the poor people? The true poor people. All of us lost folks. That Jesus became poor so that through his poverty, we might become spiritually rich in him. And so here's Mary that knows that it's good and honorable and righteous to love the poor and to serve the poor. But she also knows there's something more important than that. And it's to give Jesus your entire heart and your entire life, which is exactly what she did. And right here, Jesus cherishes that because that's what he's after, gentlemen. He's after our hearts and our lives. That's extravagant love. or Mary, rather, is the model for what true discipleship is, is to love Jesus extravagantly. The only question is, how do you get that kind of love for Jesus? How do you cultivate that kind of love? Well, it's no secret. Mary's love for Jesus was as a result of Jesus' matchless love for her. Mary was walking around with Jesus for three-something years. And she remembered all the things that Jesus had said and done, particularly for her. And she remembered those things that Jesus promised to do, and she believed it, and she rested in it. Therefore, her extravagant love is a result of Jesus' matchless love for her. This is what John tells us. This is the, this is the arithmetic of gospel love, according to John in 1 John chapter 4. It's because he first loved us that we're able to love him. So, brothers, if your love for Jesus seems to be dry, Go back and rest in his matchless love for you. But here's the kicker. How do we know that Jesus loves us? Or better yet, how do we know that uh, we can trust Jesus enough to break whatever our alabaster box is at his feet? Because that's risky business. It was risky for Mary, it was her life. But she knew that Jesus was worthy of it, she trusted him. How can we trust Jesus? I heard Sandy say that uh, one of the most terrible things that can happen to a believer this side of heaven is that we lose our sense of Jesus' special love for us. And that happens a lot, I think. And it usually happens when bad things or evil things happen to us or around us or to those that we love. Right? And when those things happen, we begin to doubt. Maybe Maybe Jesus isn't king, or at least he's not a king who's truly in control of everything. Or if he is in control of everything, maybe he really doesn't love me the way I thought he loved me, because why would he allow this to happen? All of us go through seasons of that, I think. I think it's part and parcel of being fallen people in a fallen world, even though that we're in Jesus. We have those doubts. But that's why word ministry is so important, why I love Holy Week text, like the one that we're about to look at so much. All the Bible does this, but particularly the Holy Week text. It proves to us that Jesus is, in fact, in control of absolutely everything that happens, including bad things, but that still he is sovereignly weaving them together, yes, for his glory, but also in order to save his bride, his people, including you. This is what we see in verses, um, what is it, 9 through 19. We see Jesus doing absolutely everything in order to save us, his people. Why? Because he loves us with a matchless love. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 8, essentially, that God is working out everything, not just good things and pleasant things, but also terrible things and evil things. He's working out all things for the good of his people. And we see this in Technicolor the sovereign love that Jesus Christ has for his church in verses 9 through 19. So there's three things, four things I want us to look at real quickly. First off, note Lazarus and the chief priests in verses 9 through 11. Lazarus was not interested. It wasn't his intention to become a religious celebrity. But at this point, I mean, he was more famous than Tim Keller, right? Because Jesus had (laughs) had raised Lazarus from the dead. Like everybody wanted to see Lazarus. At this point... Lazarus and Jesus are tied to the hip. You couldn't think about Jesus without thinking about Lazarus and vice versa. You couldn't think about Lazarus without thinking about Jesus. I mean, he was just famous. But do y'all remember why Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? John tells us in chapter 11, remember, I said it earlier, Jesus allowed Lazarus to die. He allowed Lazarus to die so that he could raise him from the dead three days later. Do y'all know why he did that? Well, Jesus tells us himself in chapter 11, first off, to increase the faith of the disciples. So they would see this sign of Jesus's power and authority and might. But the second reason is for his own glory. Now you say, well, duh. I mean, there's a whole lot of glory in seeing a man raised from the dead. Only God could do such a thing. Yes, that's true. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was talking about the glory of the cross. And he says some language later in John chapter 12 that, that leans that way. But just think about his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse one. When Jesus prayed, he says, the hour has come, Father. Now remember, the hour has come. That's language to denote the cross. So he's basically saying, Father, the cross has come. Now glorify your son so that I might glorify you. What Jesus is saying, what this is saying, is that in somehow, some way, by raising Lazarus from the dead, that would lead to the glory of the cross. Okay, how is that so? Well, we see in verses 10 through 11. By this miracle, by raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus intentionally agitated the chief priests. So much so that they signed his and Lazarus' death warrant. Think about how evil this is. The uh, chief priest, the Sanhedrin court, was made up of mostly Sadducees. Those were the political rulers in, uh, for the Jews. They were liberals theologically. They did not believe in the general resurrection. Okay? But here's Lazarus. Right? So it's like proof in the pudding that they were wrong and that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, that he's someone special. But rather than worshiping him with extravagant love, they decide to kill Jesus. Why? Because they knew since Jesus is so special and Rome hears about it, Rome is definitely going to intervene. And that was bad news for the Sadducees. So they decided to kill Jesus and to kill Lazarus, the proof of it. Because they wanted to hang on to their derived power and whatever scraps they could get from Caesar's table. Evil, evil, evil stuff. They knew the truth and they still wanted to kill Jesus. The point is this, Jesus orchestrated all of that. Yes, Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead because he loved Lazarus and because he loved the sisters. But Jesus also knew that Lazarus was going to die again, that he's going to do a, a greater resurrection on the day to come. So his main reason for, for raising Lazarus from the dead right now is so that these evil men would get it into their twisted hearts. They needed to kill Jesus. And Jesus went along with it. We'll see this in the text that, that come up in the next couple of weeks. Jesus, he's in complete control of his life. He's the one that lays down his life, but he has chosen to use these fools to make it so. Jesus had every intention of being crushed under the power of the Sanhedrin court and Rome. Why? Because he loves you. The story of Lazarus isn't really about Lazarus. And this dinner party at Bethany isn't really about the people in attendance. The true people that this is about is us, fellas. That Jesus does this cosmic jujitsu move. Okay, that is a form of martial arts where you use the the momentum of your enemy against itself, which is exactly what Jesus does here. He uses the momentum of these evil men and even death and Satan himself against themselves to accomplish his purposes. And what is his purpose to get your heart. That's why Jesus orchestrated all of this because of his matchless love for you. Secondly, we see this with the crowds. And this is really the, the main stuff, Chapters, or verses 12 through 19. The crowds, obviously, were very excited to see Jesus. They believed it in their heart that Jesus was king. Okay, they just knew it. The only problem is they had misplaced expectations on what type of king Jesus was. And we see this in the way they celebrated Jesus. First off, they did not believe their ultimate enemy was Satan, sin, and death. They believed it was Rome and that Sanhedrin court. And so they believed Jesus was the type of king that was going to come and wipe out all the bad guys. And we see this in the way they celebrated. First off, with the palm branches. I know all of our churches had that beautiful tradition, Palm Sunday, where the kids come and they have the palm branches, and it's really cute. But back then, it wasn't cute. Um, It was a nationalistic sign. About 200 years prior to this, Simon the Maccabee drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem and the people were so excited, and they praised God, and they sang songs, and they tore off date branches, palm branches, and they started basically venerating Simon the, Zac- or, uh, uh, Simon the Maccabee. Okay? So what that basically means is this, was a sign, this is a nationalistic sign that Jesus has come in the same vein of Simon the Maccabee, that he's going to do the same thing to, to Rome that he had done 200 years before. Then there's the song. They're singing a, a verse from Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was a messianic psalm. It was a Davidic song, And Jesus certainly is the Messiah. And he certainly is in the line of the Davidic kings. But they assumed that Jesus was going to come on a war horse. Like the kings of old. And he was going to wipe out all the enemies. You see, these crowds, they were excited about Jesus because they were, they were hope. They were basically using Jesus to accomplish their political ends. But Jesus knew their hearts. And so Jesus purposefully, intentionally squashes those nationalistic expectations. How does he do it? By purposefully getting a donkey, which, by the way, was also a kingly animal to ride. But what it symbolized was not war. It was peace, a cessation of hostility. So here's Jesus purposefully riding on a donkey, saying peace to the nations, cessation of hostility squashing their political and nationalistic expectations. And why why does he do that? Well, again, he's he's fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. But this is why he does it, to fulfill the promised plan of God and to reveal what his mission is. And this is his mission, that God sent the Son not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved and when he did that this is what happened with the crowds their cries of hosanna turned into crucify him give us barabbas in less than a week and Jesus knew that was going to happen yet he did it because he loves you lastly passover we got to talk about passover john mentions it in verse 1 i think it's kind of funny that the crowds they recognize the psalm 118 imagery the Zechariah 9, 9 imagery, they missed the Passover imagery completely. Scholars tell us that right about the time that Jesus rode in into Jerusalem upon a donkey, there were shepherds about herding about 200,000 lambs to the temple to be prepared for sacrifice. For Passover. Passover, again, the great celebration that the Jews had to commemorate God delivering them from Egypt when the angel of death passed over whoever had the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. So here's Jesus purposefully, sovereignly choosing this time in this place to communicate to you this, that he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He did that purposefully so that you might know How can you know that Jesus loves you, gentlemen? All you got to do is look to the cross. It was our sins that necessitated the cross. But do you know what drove him to the cross and held him on the cross? It was his matchless love for you men in this room. And folks, here's the deal. When you trust that, when you believe that and rest in that, You become like Mary, (laughs) who loves Jesus with an extravagant love. And you will take up her words. You will take up the words of the hymn that we just sang. When I survey that wondrous cross, love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, and my all in whatever our alabaster boxes are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for my brothers in this room. And I pray that you would help me and help all of them by the power of your spirit to believe and rest deeply in the love of Jesus. That you actually love us with a matchless love. And being so compelled by that, we would love you extravagantly. Certainly for your glory, you're deserving of it, but also so that it might be an aroma to others that they too might look to Jesus as their husband. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.